Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This is your host, Chris Sims. And as a quick editorial note, this episode originally aired about two years ago in early 2017. And while the content may not be up to date and some things have certainly changed for the better, our guest on this episode has some important points about ableism, disability, and access in archaeology that still remain as barriers to an inclusive discipline. So let's do better, y'all. Hello and welcome to the 21st episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Christopher Sims, and today I've got Hannah Marie joining me. Uh, Hannah, thanks for coming on the show. How's it going? Pretty good. And, uh, well, the timing of this episode couldn't be better because this is following uh, the previous episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast is about uh, fitness. And in that episode, I make some passing comments about ableism, and so... Uh, that's going to be more or less the theme of, of today's episode, but Hannah, could we get a brief introduction on you? Where are you now? What, what are you up to? And Because uh, you're into all sorts of projects, and uh, from our conversations, it's it's been a shifting career path for you along the way, so yeah. let's hear a little bit about that. Okay, so I started out um, grad school pursuing biological anthropology, and this uh, kind of leads into... Um, why I wanted to do this project that I'm doing for the CAAs that are happening in Atlanta in March. That is um, March 14th to the 16th. Um, And so uh, when I started out in biological anthropology for my master's, well, I was MA PhD, which ended up in me becoming a terminal master's student, um, somewhat because of some of these reasons. Um, because my shifting career path has uh, not aligned with the department I am currently finishing my master's in. Um, I started out with uh, dental evolution. (laughs) Um, So not exactly the same thing that I'm doing now, though I do have two teeth tattooed on my legs, so it is still a passion. Um, It's just not where I see my career going, even though that's uh, the lab work I still do and have done for the project I ran over the summer that has become my master's thesis. um, I've I've done still a lot of bone analysis and stuff on that, and I'm hoping, crossing my fingers, to do some more butchering analysis and stuff on that that material. But the essence of where I began was in bioarc, pretty, pretty, pretty harshly in bioarc, studying homo lineage hominids. Um, most of my field work has been in bioarc. I, I went over to Romania for a field school. I've done some bioarc in the US. Um, but I've kind of shifted in that my lab work is now pretty split between bio and zoarc. And most of that's because, you know, I just, I don't work with, um, indigenous research in the U.S. So being located in the U.S., it was kind of a shift of happenstance from bioarc being really situated within European bioarc um, to kind of finding myself within zoarc in a very haphazard way. Um, <laughs> and I accidentally became a historical archaeologist for my master's <laughs> degree uh, because the project is actually on an, a mid, well, uh, an 1800s house uh, in the Schenectady stockade. Um, but my dissertation, which I know we've talked about um, a little bit before, um, is hopefully going to be on field school efficacy 
um, and how we actually evaluate field schools and alter alternative training methods, which actually also kind of leads into what we'll be talking about today with lack of access and ableism, but that also my dissertation will hopefully touch upon, you know, the expense of field schools and, you know, are we actually doing them properly and what are students getting out of them? What are grad students getting out of them? What are researchers actually getting out of them? And that happens to come from a place of unfortunately experiencing some ableism in the field. Uh, but not only that, because I was treated effectively like a TA at a field school I was paying to be at once. And so I, I, I've shifted in that way, but my beyond finishing um, some edits on my master's thesis, uh, I'm currently working on hopefully getting into a new PhD program to do that dissertation. I'm working on this project um, for the CAAs, as I've mentioned, which is on uh, open access, disability, and accessibility in archaeology. Uh, the project itself is called Being Able in Archaeology. And I'm also still working on um, a project about ethics in archaeogaming. <laughs> that is a continuing project from last year that I gave um, in a session for Megan Dennis uh, in Kyoto at WAC 8. Uh, Hannah, that sounds... Uh, it, it sounds awesome is, is the first word I want to say. Yeah. Overwhelming would be another word we could associate with that. Uh, but also it's it, like, I think that the path that you've taken is, uh, such a great example of, um, the meandering route that archaeology can take people on. And also, unfortunately, you've encountered ableism. You've encountered some, some fairly negative experiences in the field and in field school, but it sounds like you've really managed to turn those into a productive uh, venue for, you know, doing something to change that and, and doing something to help others and give back, even though, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the most gratifying for you. So well, that's the hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that, I think especially the, the teaching efficacy, but also the survey that you're doing for CAA uh, on ableism, I think that those are going to have some really big impacts for the field. So I think before we really bite into this, um, let's, let's talk about what ableism is and some examples of, uh, or like some common examples of, of how archeology span is complicit in perpetuating ableism in the field. Well, ableism itself is actually pretty cut and dry to uh, describe, thankfully, whereas the examples will be a little bit more precarious. Ableism, in essence, is just like with sexism or racism, it's, it's, it's the idea of institutional and systemic blocks that are put on people who need accessibility in any way, shape, or form. That, that, that can mean anything from, you know, being ADHD and people understanding that sometimes you get a little distracted to being deaf, to being blind, to being like me and having chronic pain diagnosis where, you know, I may be fine for three weeks straight and then one day I'm having a really bad day and I need you to understand that I cannot hike up a mountain today. <laughs> um, maybe just let me do lab work. <laughs> you know, maybe just let me clean some stuff, which leads directly into how ableism trickles into archaeology. I mean, it's a field-based career. I mean, unless you're lucky enough to find a lab, a strictly lab position or go into being, I believe, let me find the way it was described by someone who works in heritage management, because it was actually a really good quote. Yeah, definitely. They called it desk-based research. 
And I found that really interesting because we have this idea of armchair anthropology, armchair scientists who, you know, just sat around, well, white guys in, in the 1800s just sat around talking about these type of things. Yeah. As a field, you know, it is it is obviously a problem when you do have to, for example, hike up a mountain to get to your site. But for example, one of the questions in the survey, not to get too much into the survey before we actually get to the survey, actually says, actually asks about whether or not your field school was advertised as being accessible. And the overwhelming answer is no. Yeah. I know that the field school I participated in um, did did promote itself as being accessible. I have talked to people who run field schools that 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 promote them as being accessible. But you know, at some level that has in my experience and in pretty much most of the answers I've gotten on the survey, not stopped things like jokes about, oh well, can't you just keep up and things like that where there isn't necessarily a lot in my experience or from what I've seen in the surveys answered so far of macro aggression on a, on a scale that is like, oh, well, we won't take you because of this um, when there's no reason that that particular field school shouldn't be able to. Because, of course, there is a, a gray area that you know, even someone like me with a health condition has to understand, like, I am not going to go. I cannot work in the Middle East. I know I'm not going to be able to survive in 104 degree weather. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I know I can't work in that. So I'm not going to apply to something like that. But, you know, like my work at, that I did at a field school in Romania, um, that's a very temperate climate. We weren't having to hike anywhere. So I knew that there was no reason that that sh field school shouldn't be accessible for me. Uh -huh. And so when it comes down to it, a lot of a lot of the examples of ableism in archaeology come from um, a dual concept of preconceived notions that if you say you're disabled or need accessibility, they go, oh my God, is this person in a wheelchair? Because that's an overarching problem, period, um, especially in the US that being disabled means you are in a wheelchair. Um, and that's categorically untrue. Yeah. And a mixture of people just flat out not knowing how to adapt the field to disability. That is an interesting problem that I think that has a lot of intersectionality uh that you might encounter as well, uh, being, you know, not just, um, you know, for, for your specific instance, you've got a, a very shifting condition that I think is, is hard for others to handle their perception of it. Like you had mentioned, um, and also shifting access depending on like your pain levels and, and whatnot. Um, and just the fluctuations of an illness, you know, like it's, it's a, it's not a, a stable thing. So there's there's that uh, being a, a moving target. But then there's also, I don't know if, if this is accurate, um, you know, there's also probably chances for like sexism and ageism and uh, oh, you know, yeah, various absolutely. other factors being moved in there. Because you had mentioned uh, at the onset of, of this show uh, how you were relegated to TA positions and stuff like that. And I think that that's yeah, a common thing that, yeah. And I've, <laughs> I've witnessed this in, in various other roles and, you know, as, as a, you know, one of the supervisors and uh, leaders of a field school myself, I try really hard to, you know, if I'm ever 
going to relegate or delegate rather <laughs> not relegate uh if i'm going to delegate uh you know like note-taking tasks or documenting tasks to someone i'm always thinking like why why am i choosing this person and if if it's because there's some kind of like <laughs> uh perceived like secretarial role that i that i'm doing then there's there could be a problem with that you know if it's yeah. like this person is actually like the best map drawer uh then and there always is one yeah there's always one and i really hope she's coming back this year because her maps are awesome um but you know then i have other people who are really good at describing uh dimensions and stuff like that and so you know it's it's going to be a different person each time but if I'm just going to sideline one person for the whole day, there's a problem with that. And it's, it's taking away opportunities from someone and it's taking away, uh, experiences from someone that, you know, makes them a stronger archeologist. And so I, I think that that's, you know, part of the problem, uh, that's going on there from like a supervisor's perspective is, you know, they're, <laughs> they're not thinking about how they're limiting someone and it might, it might not be intentional. You know, it might just be a careless thing that they're, they could very well be uh, like a, a well-intentioned decision or, you know, trying to help you out. But the result of that is they're not doing you any favors. They're not helping you out. I, I would agree with that. I mean, I became the delegated photo photographer for the first two days of, I think it was the first two days of my dig in Romania and that was pretty much because I have a photo degree and I was the only person there who had a photo degree yeah. and and I had done a field school before and the only other person who had even some art experience you know well as far as I remember this was three or four years ago um you know they hadn't done a field school before but and and so you, you get into a mess with that too where where you have to make decisions like that thankfully in my case I didn't have any decisions like that made based on my ability um, or or perceived ability based off of my disability. Um, just the unfortunate fact that I happen to have a degree and have done the thing before, yeah. but I have witnessed it being a problem where somebody wasn't allowed to do something. And it definitely echoes in my survey responses I've gotten thus far, which I believe out of 44 respondents now, 10 of which were not eligible um, because they answered no, that they aren't a disabled individual. Okay. Um, okay. And I have one person who has answered as being in a related field, which means they get skipped to the end of the survey where they're just allowed to comment on their own experiences. They don't take the full survey um, because I wanted disabled individuals or people with chronic conditions that don't necessarily consider themselves disabled because I that's an important distinction there. Um, because, for example, someone with asthma and allergies, which I have actually a few of those who have answered, um, may not consider themselves disabled, but obviously that can be a great hindrance in the field. Like if you're allergic to palm trees, you maybe don't want to go work in like Hawaii, <laughs> where that's half the trees as far as i know i've actually never been to hawaii so i guess that's a little yeah or me. if it's just a sensitivity to airborne particulates you know yeah. heaven forbid you get near screens as yeah, an excavation you, you is going be the person to screen things um 
And so I, you, you know, you, there's also that weird gray area. And I know I have several people, um, several women, actually a lot of them digital archaeologists uh, with endometriosis who have answered who, you know, that's a, it, it's inconsistent. And, you know, you don't necessarily, a lot of those types, type of conditions, uh, endometriosis, PCOS, anything like that, even celiac disease or IBS, you don't consider yourself disabled, but that's obviously a debilitating chronic condition. Mm, yeah. um, and so it, it it hits on a lot of that no, those notes too, where, you know, if you have endometriosis, you're, and you're in the field for four months, you know, there's very little you can do to avoid having that be an issue at some point. And I mean, that's the type of condition where you don't function for several days right in a row, and you literally can't do anything about that. So uh, let's talk about the results for the survey. Um, I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring out, like, uh, you know, the, the deeper implications for this, but, you know, what does it suggest so far? So um, the session itself at the CAAs um, is about open access and things pretty much being the same as they always were and, you know, that revolving door of, you know, what open access and, and the digital side of things can actually do to broaden archaeology and include different minority groups that may not otherwise be have the access to archaeology that other groups do. And that, you know, ranges from being socioeconomic to disability to just flat out location wise. Obviously, if you live in rural Iowa, it's going to be much harder and more expensive for you to get to a any field school, (laughs) any field school than someone who lives in New York City who can get a direct flight to almost anywhere. But the session itself focuses on minority groups. And I chose to focus on ableism because almost and disability because almost categorically, when you look at someone do demographics of isms, you know, whether it's sexism, racism, any anything on the spectrum, you know, uh, transphobia, xenophobia, anything like that. Ableism is categorically left out of intersectional work. Um, we actually saw this be a huge problem with the, the March for Science, and I have no qualms with, with talking down on the way that's gone so far because that is a great example of something that promoted being intersectional is so important that it's intersectional because science being intersectional is so integral to science. It is. I think that that is absolutely a, a great point to bring up. So. Distressing shame in the way they've handled it. And the fact that it took a week of people being like, literally, please add just the word disability, disabled, something, yes. accessibility to your page. Guys, come on. While they were tweeting out memes and, and responding to people with smiley faces, and I got called the C word. I actually got called Hitler once for yeah. saying that they, that over all of this, I got literally got called Hitler for asking them to include a word and saying science, you can't remove intersectionality and politics from science, which is insane. Like, and I, I, I guess I shouldn't use that word because that's a, actually an ableist term in and of itself <laughs> at, at some levels. But yeah, ableism is pervasive. It, it's a pervasive problem. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think just to back up real quickly for anybody who's not familiar with the situation at hand, uh, the the original situation was the the march for science uh was an organization that was planned uh mostly on facebook they had some twitter stuff going on and it was this kind of like open facebook group that started i think they closed right after several thousand numbers very quickly yeah 
but even then, when you get several thousand members, a secret group really isn't that secret. And um, there were various issues going on, like uh, with representation in the March for Racism, Science. Racism, xenophobia, Classism, yeah. And so also defining like the the image that they were going for and kind of the meaning of a science the the definition of a scientist that they were going for and stuff like that was total erasure of a lot of stuff especially the the um the human sciences uh and a lot of the earth sciences as well like we're we're not all chemical engineers uh and that seemed to be what they were going for and uh, you know, good good on them for including a lot of people, but they they weren't really including. And so the problem at hand uh, that you were mentioning is when they finally put together a blog post and started to organize the march, they had an official statement, and their official statement tried to be inclusive, but it wasn't really there. And so what they happened, like you. Atheists by like they said belief or non-belief. They went out of their way to be able to quantify that and didn't think to mention accessibility or disability a single time for a march. There was no, hey, we're also working on accessibility for this. Nothing. There wasn't a single mention of disability, disabled, or accessibility on the page. But they went out of their way to mention atheism while claiming to be intersectional. (laughs) So that wasn't something people pushed on them. They were claiming that as as them. And if anybody wants to go back and look at the the exchange, you know, like you and I had mentioned in in the chats we had leading up to this podcast that you know you have no qualms about. Uh, putting, you know, bashing people who are behaving wrongly. Yeah, uh, no call. So if anybody wants to go check out Hannah's Twitter, it's it's at Tiny Sapien on on Twitter, and you took some screen caps of some of the the pretty hateful messages that you got, and it was on Facebook as well. But you know, it's it's open on Twitter, and it was shocking and horrifying, and it made me like I was interested in in participating in the Portland march. And it made me just kind of, you know, quickly lose interest in it. I was, which is a shame, but it's true. It's kind of like, eh, I don't really care. There's so many other inclusive marches and protests in Portland that happen every single day that I'm... Yeah, you're at the Mecca, so... <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, but, you know, to get back to that, it's, I think that that is a perfect example of how pervasive ableism is in the sciences and how that you're, you had polite requests at the very beginning. You just said, Hey, you should include ableism or, you know, ability and disability and access in your statement. And they couldn't, they just couldn't do it. And for no other reason, literally got a, a smiley face tweet back from them in response to that, which took just as much time as it would have to edit one word into a WordPress blog post. Yeah. And there was no reason for them not to do it. No, no reason. And uh, so the, it's just embarrassing and shameful. And it's <laughs> it's not even low key. It's overt ableism to to respond to you that way and then also to still not include a disability statement in their mission statement um so i don't i don't know if that's going to shape anyone's opinions of the march on science 
Uh, I think that it's important to act on science. I think it's important to have civic engagement and activism, but, um, you know, what's it all for if, if, uh, it's still perpetuating systematic, uh, discrimination in, in, uh, pretty simple ways. Yeah. And it's, it's unfortunate. Well, I also low key bought the domain is sciencepolitical.com <laughs> <laughs> and it just says yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's all it says. But I actually, uh, on that note, uh, I'm thinking of adding testimonials of why science is political um, from actual scientists uh, because of this issue, because it, because people willfully don't want to see why something like science can't be removed from politics. And it's not just about, you know, making conservation policy obviously requires science to give it data. <laughs> So you shouldn't be making policy, which is part of the political process, without science to back up your policy, because otherwise we get, well, what the hell they're trying to do with the Endangered Species Act right now and limit it to a certain number of species, which is not how that works, uh, funny enough. Um, But it also continues the narrative of any ism at all. You know, saying that science isn't political acts as if scientists don't have bias. Our methods and our answers don't have to necessarily be affected by that bias for the bias to be there. Because you can get, three people can get the same answer for a question and they're all going to write it up different ways. Science isn't, and especially archaeology, given actually the topics that we deal with being so intrinsically human. I mean, that's that's what we do. Yeah. We study human interaction in the past, for a lack of a more succinct way to put it. But like literally, what we study is people, just dead ones. <laughs> <laughs> usually, usually dead ones, um, or at least very very old at this point in time um, individuals. And, you know, it's hard for me to reconcile, especially when I look over the data of the treatment of what people have gotten in field schools in archaeology in science period, and look at that without being like, how the hell do you think you can actually erase intersectionality isms and politics from science when it directly affects who can do science and how they can do their science. Yeah, not to mention who gets the results of the science and how those results are applied. That's where it gets like incredibly political is you know the the results of any sort of scientific undertaking has to do with engaging with people, you know, you're transferring knowledge and and this goes I think this goes back to something else you're working on the efficacy of of educational programs and whatnot, and the efficacy of, of science. Like, are we learning and how well are we learning? Is Are we learning the right things and stuff like that? Um, and so that goes back to archaeology. You know, what, what we do, like you had said, we're studying humans and human variables and the kinds of things that we're studying, the, the theoretical approaches, the methods that we're using, and then the results of our studies have very real implications for living humans. And so, you know, with the results of of your study on ableism in archaeology, 
uh, you know, that's something that can be broadly applied back to broader society and looking at uh, structural ableism and all, all of the other pervasive forms of it. What are some some ways that archaeology could be more inclusive to differently abled people? What are some ways to make it more accessible? I'll start off by saying, of course, you know, because there's always people who are going to be like, well, you can't put a chairlift on a mountain yes but that's that's a a sincere minority of sites are indiana jones in a helicopter jumping out of a hello like you have to jump out of something or hike 15 miles to get there that's a minor my stringent minority of sites you know you, you look at your average crm site in the u.s and it's yeah you might have to walk but like there's no reason that the majority of sites can't be made accessible to the majority of people. Of course, there's, there's always going to be something you can't, you just can't plan for. You just, you can't logistically without affecting other people affect. And it, nobody who has a chronic illness doesn't understand that. Like I, uh, I'll bring up what I said about I will never work in the Middle East because I am not going to put it on somebody else to deal with the fact that my body cannot handle 117 degrees day in and day out. And I know my body can't handle that. You know, I know that I'm going to have to take a break every 15 minutes. I know my hands are going to swell to the point where I just can't even use them half of the way through, you know, the day. So I'm not going to put that burden on somebody else. But that doesn't mean that even in a situation like that, I may not be able to dig. But everybody needs artifacts cleaned. Everybody needs artifacts accessioned into bags and properly cataloged and stuff like that. So a lot of accessibility is looking at the available opportunities on any given site and understanding how to look at the logistics of what students or, or researchers would like to come and how to deal with, like, with that. Um, I do have a friend who has, uh, or slash, uh, what went to grad school where I did, um, who has a muscle issue and he can't dig, but he does all of the pottery reconstruction. Most, all of a large percentage of the cleaning, you know, they, archaeology has been accessible to him in that way because those opportunities were made available for him. Mm. And if people aren't willing to make those opportunities available, um, that's when you get to this point where you're like, well, you're not even trying. Um, because outside of someone who literally cannot use their hands, there's nothing stopping you from making some part of a project accessible and so it's not it goes a little bit beyond the field even though my survey is about the field because this isn't just an issue with the field uh one of my survey respond respondents actually talked about how she's um applied for internships and been denied because they would have to get additional health insurance for her than a normal intern because of her health condition, and she was denied because of that. Or she perceived she was denied because of that. I, I, I mean, I obviously don't know the whole situation, but that that even could happen. And I know it does because I 
have not had the exact same issue, but I have been low-key told before that I did not get something because a previous person with a condition similar to mine had to drop out, and so they didn't want to risk me having to be me having to drop out. Um, uh, uh. So you run, yeah. <laughs> that was uh, that was not related to archaeology. That was unfortunately a state internship. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, that was very a very icky 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 situation that i just walked away from and went well i don't want to work for you anymore (laughs) um if that's how you feel um and so you run into a lot of toxic situations as someone with any sort of uh disability or or health disadvantage because i mean even you can just look at conferences and, and it's a mess trying to get conferences to accept being accessible yeah, um, yeah. You know, particularly for for uh, the deaf and and blind slash hard of hearing uh, communities, um, because those are obviously different types of issues you have to deal with that take much more pre planning than getting me a chair so that I can sit during my presentation. Um, but an astonishing number of you know conferences, i.e., all but the SAAs that I have presented at have not provided a chair for the presenter, have just had a podium up in the front of the room, and that's it. You know, there's not even one kind of easily available. Like, unfortunately, at WAC 8, I didn't even bother asking for a chair. And I just want to say this was, I I didn't even bring it up to Megan during the session because there was nothing she could have done about it. Because they had us in rooms with standing tables and student desks. So the only way I could have made that truly accessible for me was to take a chair that is attached to a desk and put it in the front of the room. Oh my goodness. So I didn't even bring it up at WAC because, you know, that's it. I'm not going to sit at the front of a room at a student desk. It not only infantilizes me, but it's a distraction and it, you know, it brings too much attention for it. So I, uh, uh, at the SHAs, I probably could have asked for a chair when I was presenting my poster, but there were no chairs in sight at the SAJs this year. And it was, it's not that it's always their fault because there are definitely situations in which, like those two situations in which I did not ask for a chair. But when I don't see a chair even within a hundred feet of me and there's no one really overseeing a poster session, well, who am I supposed to ask? So now I have to run away from my poster because you guys didn't bother to put a singular chair anywhere in the vicinity of a poster session where people are going to be standing. Yeah. There's got to be a chair somewhere. Yeah. So at some level, I understand that, you know, in these two particular situations that I've mentioned that are just me personally finding an issue I didn't ask, but it's also kind of astonishing to think that you can look at a poster session And it wasn't like it was the first day and look around and there's not a single chair in eyesight of that poster session, because that means they didn't even think about the fact that somebody, even an able-bodied person might need to sit down after an hour and a half. And so there's an assumption that people have to demand this type of thing as well and that in and of itself is problematic it's not that i'm excusing myself from not asking i definitely could have should have asked well at whack i feel like i had a very good reason to not bother um but you know I'll, i'll use the shjs as a good example then the fact 
that there that there's seemingly not even a thought about this. And you know, I went to a lot of sessions at the SAJs. It was the same thing. I mean, those podiums did not have seats behind them. <laughs> you know, you would have had to have taken one from the crowd. Um, the only people who were sitting in chairs, and this is pretty pretty commonplace. Um, were the session organizers or the commentators and such, um, never the presenters. And then you, you know, it becomes awkward because then you have to disclose, you have to disrupt things just to get a bloody chair to sit in, uh, which was great at the SAAs because I actually got to sit down at a table, actually most of, half of the presenters in uh, the session that uh, Lorna and Kate ran for that, which was um, evaluation in public archaeology, which the paper I gave for that was the precursor to me writing the proposal for my dissertation. <laughs> nice. And, you know, that was really nice because they had a table up at the front with chairs. Um, now, I got lucky in that, that, you know, Lorna and Kate weren't sitting up at the, room, the front of the room. John, who was the, John Lowe, who was the discussion, wasn't sitting up at the front of the room. So I didn't have to ask. So I could just sit down and read off of my surface, which was actually really convenient um, with the no Wi-Fi that they had at the SAAs last year. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, another accessibility issue. Yeah, right there. A different Not accessibility <laughs> issue, but still an issue. Still uh, an issue. But I think that these examples bring up a lot of good points about how, you know, from your experiences in the field to your experiences at conferences, like you've, you've mentioned that, you know, your limits and, you deal with a lot of limits that are imposed on you, but it's a whole different thing for others to impose limits on you, yes. whether that's through um, total lack of forethought on providing accessible services or, or features, or just, you know, saying you can't do this. I'm not going to accept you. That kind of, that kind of thing and imposes a lot of limits. Of that, yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, it is crazy. So is it better for someone to ask, like, what shouldn't you do than, you know, saying like, well, what can you do? You know, it's like you can do a whole lot of stuff, but what what are things that you shouldn't be able to do? And like, what are and what are just let you self-identify basically and say, like, you know, these are these are the things that would help me. Is, is it better for them to present that option uh, rather than to impose their own? I, I think allowing the self-identification option is always good. I'm going to give um, Paulina, who is, oh, what is Paulina's username on Twitter? Panukesh, because I'm not going to pronounce Paulina's last name correctly. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to. I'm not gonna. She actually approached me um, about the tweet up for the this year's SAAs and um, about how to word a question on the survey she sent out about accessibility. It can be as little as doing something like that, honestly. It doesn't even have to be about what can we do or what shouldn't we do. It's literally as little as I can't tell you out of the umpteenth number of conferences I've, I've attended as either just an attendee at TAG, at working at TAG as a volunteer one year, um, at presenting at WAC, at presenting at the SAAs, at presenting at the SAJs, presenting at the CAAs, which ironically I registered for today, um, actually, and here I am talking <laughs> about this today. Um, 
I have never once seen on a registration form, do you need accessibility? Are there, are there any things we can do for you? Mm. Right there. You know, and, and conferences are, I, I'm using conferences, not the field as, as an example right now, because not only do they, they have come up in a lot of people's uh, issues in the survey, um, a lot have pe of people, um, particularly uh, those hard of hearing, um, have, have talked about in the comments on the survey about how conferences are a huge issue because people just, they just don't provide that type of accessibility um, unless you like scream at them. <laughs> Which is also, I mean, you had brought up the point of infantilizing with the small desk, but I mean, it's humiliating yeah. to be shouted at, you know, like yeah. that's just not appropriate. Yeah, I won't even, oh, I really don't want to go into some very unfortunate comments that were made at WAC 8 that I was not actually present for, but I, I um, put forward a resolution to include. Now, if anybody doesn't know the uh, purpose of WAC, uh, which is the World Archaeology Congress. I I keep not actually explaining what the CAAs is, which I probably should have done at some point, but oh well. It's a very, very long, complicated name. We can do that after WAC. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so WAC is the World Archaeology Congress, and their purpose, they, they came out of um, protecting heritage and and professionals in the field out of apartheid South Africa. So like apartheid South African political action was like wax thing. Um, I put forth a resolution that was turned down for reasons which Megan said the comments were so bad that she wouldn't tell me what was said. Oh my God. But the uh, summary I got from people was, well, shouldn't disabled people be speaking for themselves? Because I wanted disability officially recognized as being a disadvantaged population uh, in their code of ethics and their whatnot, um, particularly for funding for their conferences, because often disabled individuals make much less than able-bodied individuals even within academia, and that's for a multitude of reasons. But it was turned down. Like, they, they said no to adding disability into, into their minority status list and whatnot, which was just shocking to me. And I was actually very glad I wasn't there for this. Um, because it... And I'm using it as an example, not necessarily just... Oh, there was a lot of issues, unfortunately, at WAC this year with things that should not have been said that were said. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is a pervasive, pervasive attitude. And it's a great example of how, you know, WAC's done amazing things with, you know, in indigenous rights and making sure that, you know, they, their, their payments are tiered by where you come from. So they, they take into consideration making it much more affordable for people from third world countries to participate and be members. But for some reason, it was a problem to suggest adding disability. And that's a common problem I've run into and in even getting disability to the table, yeah. not even just in science, but period in social justice and intersectionality. And I, I know I've, I've mentioned that being an issue before, but it's unfortunately even more pervasive in, in the field sciences, not just archaeology, because of this perception of having to be able-bodied to participate, period. So you get a lot of people, and, I, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily what happened at uh, WAC, just to make that, that clear. This is a general statement on, on everything, you know, where 
we can hearken back to the Mark John Science thing instead as an example um, because of that, where I literally got <laughs> yelled at. Ask, I literally got yelled at by people for asking to include disability. Yeah, in all caps. Me. In all caps. It was called the C word multiple times. Was you were called cussed Hitler. at. I was Hitler. <laughs> yeah. I was yeah. out. I was called a snowflake. I was told to go F myself. Oh my God. From I, scientists. From from scientists, from scientists, and it wasn't like it. It wasn't like it was just like white males. Yeah, no, and it's also it's, it's just not, surprising that it's it's not just normal uh, yeah. trolls that come out of the woodwork here in light of recent political events, but it, it, in a specific focused group for a march for scientists to organize and promote science, there are these hateful trolls in there that are doing all these things. That all of that, like you had said, all of that requires so much more energy than simply going, okay, we'll, we'll include disability access. Literally editing one word into a text blog post on WordPress, which is literally the <laughs> easiest thing you can edit ever. But apparently I was some sort of huge snarky asshole for asking this. Yeah, you're the and asshole. Yeah. That makes was, perfect sense. It's, it's mind-boggling to me that just asking for disability to be included, which is another reason I really wanted to do this survey and uh, um, have really wanted to include this, this. Some of this data actually will probably end up in my dissertation because it is relevant to you know field school efficacy and uh, alternative training methods to point out that we have all of these different groups, not only socioeconomic, which I knew was going to be a part of my dissertation because, you know, there are some field schools that just the field school costs 10 grand, which is yeah. insane. I will actually use the word insane for that because there is no rational reason for a field school to cost 10 grand. No, and it's it's harmful, you know, to have that kind of a business model. That's a for-profit field school. Yeah, that's a for-profit field school. Unfortunately, uh, I guess I'll say, fortunately, less of a problem in archaeology, more of a problem in paleo studies. I will not name names on field schools, but I'm pretty sure anybody could think of at least one that is at least that much money um, <laughs> in the paleo studies if you do paleo work at all. Um, <laughs> it will deliberately not be included in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and oh, now I've lost track because I, I went on the money tangent. I told myself I wasn't going to go on the money tangent today because it's only somewhat relevant. It's, it's not the pervasive Well, idea. I think well, the money tangent is an important one to go on, especially in, in light of yeah. ableism, because it's one of those intersectional issues where the, it has a, a large bearing on disability because – uh, I was I was I saw this little viral video that's going around Facebook about a device that helps um, certain types of of blind people um, see, and one of the stats that uh, it was sharing on the video, and I don't know how accurate it was being a, a viral Facebook video, but um, it said that seventy percent of blind people are unemployed, and I would imagine that that's probably a, a pretty even number for uh, you know most disabilities across the board that there's a strong correlation between unemployment and disability and so therefore there's a strong correlation between class and 
you know, yeah. poverty and yeah. And as a, if you go on like SSID, you're only allowed to work. I think it's 12 or 15 hours a week or something like it's not even a part-time job. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not even a part-time job. And some people need the SSID just to pay for making their life accessible, let alone eating. Yeah, let you alone know? medical attention too. But, I mean, yeah. especially with the horrendous state that healthcare is in in this country. It's oh, don't get me started on that because then we will totally <laughs> derail this into me screaming. Yes, episode twenty-two, uh, where we just shout just about healthcare. <laughs> just us screaming about healthcare. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> it could be a thing. It, well, it is a thing. It is a thing. And it and it definitely, you know, it's obviously also affects people in the field, you know, because um, the state of insurance in this company, I get, uh, in this con- company, country, I can absolutely understand how some field schools find it hard to make it accessible because of the way schools have to buy insurance and stuff and having to, you know, and, and do things like that. Um, doesn't mean doesn't mean that they shouldn't. Yeah. But it means I understand it on some level because... Um, and this actually harkens to my dissertation a little more than this project in particular. Um, but there are a lot of logistical problems and, and things that we might believe we should be doing, but are often utopian because of the way science is viewed because of the way the, we're not a humanity, but so often we get lumped in with the humanities and that's really depressing. Yeah. Um, that another podcast could be done just on why it's depressing uh, that we're lumped in with the humanities so often <laughs> um, by, by by society because we're not. We do hard science. We we do isotopes. Like, I don't know how you can get much more hard science than isotopes, but apparently we're wishy-washy. I don't know. People are weird. Yeah. Well, I think also addressing disability, like <laughs> this, us being lumped into the humanities just made me kind of think about this in, in a loosely connected thing is that addressing disability as like one specific need or one specific uh issue is an erasure of all of the different uh you know access issues and all of the different uh issues that people with disabilities deal with you know just as as we were talking about just a second ago with uh you know poverty unemployment and all in addition to just like the the pain and discomfort and like all of the the day-to-day stuff that people with disabilities live with in addition to all that you know then you're getting lumped into like you know one specific one-size-fits-all thing and so i think that that's why there's that need for um you know like you had said just a simple box on a registration form for a conference or you know just the ability to self-identify and and say here's what i need or you know yeah people don't even ask which is like it's it's astonishing that you know you're you're talking about doing a physical thing and it's not even on people's minds to ask about accommodations and disability as if it's that crazy that someone might be have a disability of any sort like what's stopping a deaf individual from attending your field school minus that hey would you mind making sure you print out all of your lectures ahead of time 
Yeah. Um, you know, don't just yell at me. Make sure you remember to come over and tap me on the shoulder. It's very, very little things, you know, that people don't even bother to do like the bare minimum, which is, and then, you know, they yell at you when you try and get it included as the bare minimum, <laughs> which is, and, and, you know, it, it may sound like we've gotten totally off topic for my survey, but this is a pervasive thing in my survey that like, well, you know, I don't even want to disclose because they didn't ask and it's clear they're not thinking about it. I yeah. mean, let yeah. me look at the number again. How many was it said that the, the field school didn't ask or wasn't listed as accessible? Yeah. And I could see why some, some field schools have a hard time providing access, but I feel like it, uh, you know, I, you might know the answer to this. I feel like it should be required if it's not already required. Uh, I feel like it should be required to provide access. Theoretically, if you are associated with a U.S. university or U.K. university, I can't speak to other countries. I only know the law in the U.S. and the U.K. because those are the only two places I have studied personally as a student. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm. Well, I can actually I can say Canada, even though I haven't studied there. I do know Canada also has this clause for universities. So you have to provide provide reasonable accessibility. So, like I said before, nobody's asking you to put a chairlift on the side of a mountain. It, you know, people seem to think that disabled people or people with a chronic condition aren't aware of what their limitations are, but we are. Yeah, you live with and it. <laughs> we, we we live with that every day. We live with the choice every every single day of making these choices. You know, if I choose to do three months of field work in the summer, I know I need a month off after that or I will be dead and non-functioning. Don't talk to me. Let me sleep for two weeks. I know that I'm never going to work in the Middle East because I know what my body is like above 85 degrees and yeah. it's non-functioning. Yeah. Um, so the, the thing is, is that I, I found the question. So out of 34 people who were eligible to continue with the thir survey 30 answered this question 23 answered no to the question have you ever participated in a field school field work or other archaeological outreach opportunity that was promoted as being accessible so this question it wasn't even just about field schools it wasn't even just about well have you found working in crm accessible i included outreach opportunities specifically because i know um I know you do some of this as well, you know, working in pub, public arc and stuff like that and doing, you know, demonstrations and things like that. And just participating in something like that can be utterly unaccessible to a person. Yeah. Like they can't even come see something because you've not bothered to do the bare minimum of, okay, well, we're doing this at, outside rather than inside because we want people out in the sun for no reason or whatever you know it you know people make rain plans but they don't make plans for people to be able to actually come to the site who who may need something to <laughs> lean on like if you're doing an open house at your site and there is a parking lot 15 feet away there's no reason there aren't a few chairs yeah much less a little pop-up tent yeah there's there's, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to an archaeology open house type event at a site that was perfectly accessible, other than the for parking, for getting there. Like it's in the middle of a field, 
So yeah, maybe a little hard to get a wheelchair out to where you're actually doing the demonstration, but there's not a single chair. I can't tell you how many sites where I've gone to, to see something, wanted to see something, and I found myself sitting on the ground or sitting on remnants of the site itself, because that's the only place that I could sit was either sit in the dirt or sit on this stone here. Yeah. And, you know, so it, it comes full circle to even our outreach isn't accessible. Our conferences aren't accessible. So we're not just talking about the climbing the mountain stuff here. And I keep coming back to that because I'm trying to not only talk to archaeologists when it's about this because, you know, plenty of lay people are interested in, in archaeology. And, well, I could just talk about Megan's whole dissertation at this point about perceptions of archaeology. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, the perception of archaeology is that climbing the mountain. Even amongst a lot of archaeologists, the perception is... Well, if you can't hike, you can't do it. I think that that leads into another problem that we could talk about in, in a whole different episode, which is uh, the kind of uh, <laughs> the machismo of the field. Yeah. Uh, but I think that the the machismo of the field, like all the issues that, that you were just talking about, leads into this this perception of ability and this perception of like no guts no glory kind of thing yeah what participation in archaeology looks like and i think that there's a lot of unrealistic expectations and unrealistic perceptions of what doing archaeology looks like and what it actually involves and what it actually involves is a lot more sitting than climbing mountains a lot more you know fine-grained detail work and you know it, it's not adventuring it's not running away from boulders rolling after you and stuff yeah. like that it's ironically the only day of my field work in romania that i missed was actually a lab day because we had to walk to the lab uh -huh. i never missed a day of field work because we were digging up burials i was on my stomach all day half in the shade because I'm 20 feet down in the ground and the wall, you know, the, the trench itself provides me shade. Yeah. I had no problem doing that. You know, I, I had a bigger problem when we had to move dirt piles and stuff, but that's usually temporary work. And I can usually do, you know, 40 minutes of that. And then I need to sit down, but anybody should be sitting down after 40 minutes of moving a dirt pile, yes. you know? Yeah. And so there's this perception that, you know, and I, I can only really speak for myself um, or people with similar conditions and, and level of condition of mine here, but there's a perception that anything physical, once you throw the word disability at it, oh, well, that person's going to be flaky. Well, no, I literally, you know, I, again, I, I missed one day of field work that wasn't, you know, everybody missed because it was raining. Yeah. Because... Yeah. Because of my illness and it was a lab day because i couldn't walk the half a mile to the lab that day yeah and that's important too to to understand like those kinds of access issues and it, you raised a really important point in there are access issues in our outreach as well and i deal with that with just this podcast i have um uh i don't know if you follow her on, on twitter it's at uh that kind of place or some, some yes. kind of place yeah who has who is one of the people who has answered the survey 
And I've talked to her at length about the survey too, actually. So Yeah. And so I interact with her a good bit on, on Twitter and, and like uh, we've had a lot of conversations about access and disability. And one of the, the issues that I deal with with the podcast is the challenge of making it accessible to someone with hearing impairment. And until she brought that up to me, it honestly you know, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it had not even crossed my mind, but I really appreciated her bringing that up to me. And it's something that I keep researching and all that. And so it's one of those things I could take the time to transcribe everything by hand and listen to the episode and write all, write the whole transcript out, but there's software that does it in seconds. And yeah, that software though (laughs) is pretty expensive and the the free and affordable ones are just not accurate like i've played around with the free ones already and i've uh i haven't spent money on the cheap ones yet just because the free ones were so awful that it was just like nonsense so you know i want to be able to provide that but it's going to take some uh funding well and something like uh closed captioning or transcribing is an interesting thing to bring up because there's also I may be educating you for a moment, a perception that something like closed captioning is just for the deaf or hard of hearing community. But for someone like me, if I'm having a bad pain day or I have a migraine, I need closed captioning because I can't necessarily always focus on an image and the words at the same time if my pain levels are high. So for even someone like me, transcription and closed captioning can be a huge boon because you're... And they've actually, uh, oh God, I I wish I had this study saved on my computer so I could look up who the, the author was. But they actually have done studies on that about the way if when you're in pain, your brain reacts to things. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, my my current partner has made fun of me before, not, not in a mean way, um, for always having the captions on. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you don't get it. You know, when I, have a, when I have a migraine or I'm in pain, having the captions on means I don't miss things in the show. Yeah. And captions are great anyway, just as a jokey side note, because you get all the background captions and sometimes you get to know things that otherwise you would not hear. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> and I listen, <laughs> yeah, I watch shows and movies with the captions on usually just because I love stuff like that, especially if I yeah. can get a screenshot of like heavy breathing or whatever the <laughs> or, caption oh, is. Uh, monkeys farting? <laughs> there is a uh, docu, uh, there's a uh, document documentary i believe it's wild asia or one of those and literally one of the captions is monkeys farting (laughs) that's awesome and you know it 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 can be made into a joke but a a lot of people do underestimate and that comes back to transcription i will give you is one of those things that unfortunately doing it and doing it well either means you need a volunteer or a paid assistant or you need you know it, it there there are additional logistics to that beyond the why do you not add one more box onto your sign-up sheet that says do you need any accessibility um but that's why you know accessibility is a tiered approach um and actually i'll use a almost unrelated issue to um science or anything but for example i was talking to the uh head of the disability resource center at uh, what will be my alma mater for my master's degree, which is at the University at Albany, and to put buttons 
on one set of metal double doors at the school to make it more accessible is $4,400. Oh, what? And so it's really weird to think about accessibility um, in that way because for anything else I've ever said about where I have done my master's and I've not been secretive about not being happy about some things that are not necessarily departmentally related, um, just with the, the experience as a whole from, from the, the school, uh, their disability resource center is amazing, but it was, it was interesting to sit down with her, um, and talk about this, um, because I was, I was, we were talking about, um, something else. This was my first year in grad school. No, it might've been my second year in grad school. Um, and to just hear that number like shook me to my core. And it definitely gave me a different level, I think, of understanding about, you know, just how expensive accessibility is and made me really switch my focus from being like, no, you need to make everything accessible to trying to help people understand what the difference between, well, just too expensive to be accessible and there are absolutely bare minimum things that don't even inconvenience you that people don't bother to do. And it's those little things, the little things bother me so much more because there's no reason not to edit one word into a WordPress post. There is no reason not to add, I'm never going to drop that they took a week to do that with multiple people. And they allowed people to yell at people and curse them out over. And it wasn't just me. Other people got attacked for it too. Yeah. Um, I I never dropped that that happened, especially because they went and then on the New York times or it was New York times, right. Where they bragged about being apolitical. Like they said that the the March was apolitical. Yes. Yes. After announcing that they were, Oh, sorry. No, I could do a whole podcast just on how angry I am about the March for science or on science, whatever, uh, whole podcast. So, but to, to wrap that idea, uh, what I was getting to there up is, you know, so it did give me a different understanding of how expensive accessibility can be. And, you know, that was um, before my health started to decline a little bit. Um, my hands went started to go bad about my second year in grad school, and I was diagnosed with Renaud's. Um, my throat started to go bad. And it, so I, I've had a, a few other issues that have, have been accelerated my own health in a direction that has made me very glad that I had already accelerated my career in a different direction. <laughs> um but you know so so i it's it's when you think about accessibility and i think this this harkens back to you know why i wanted to do this this paper on open access very well because these are the bare minimum things we're talking about things that do not affect revenue we're talking about things that make you know for all purposes they make you look better as an organization to do (laughs) yeah because let's be real it's good pr to look very accessible yeah and it's also just good to take the easy win you shouldn't be doing it for that but you know i've also worked in pr as i mentioned worked in fashion pr (laughs) now i like to dig in the dirt and it's it's just it is mind boggling to me on a level that you wouldn't want to promote your organization in a positive way like that to promote the bare minimum. And it's always going to come back to that, that, you know, the majority of field schools, the majority of conferences, they don't add a freaking box to tick of 
do you need accessibility in any way, shape or form? Like, that's it. Like most people aren't asking for a lot. And often when you get into the conversation about disability, you, you get the people who scream about the really expensive stuff and they focus on that so hard. And I'm not talking about the disabled community. I'm talking about, this is how I've had, you know, able-bodied people respond to me personally, is that they go, well, why do you expect people to put 10 grand more onto one student than another? I'm not asking for 10 grand more. I'm asking you to put a goddamn chair next to the podium. Yeah. I'm asking you to print out, at least openly print out descriptions of things at a conference. Now, you know, that's much harder at something like the SAAs or, you know, and things like that, where you're literally catering to, you know, several thousand people. But it's not like you see it at smaller conferences either. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's just, and that's why it, it comes down to, and I, I guess I can, can sum it up the, up the issue with this. And this is, harkens to so many of the the comments that I've gotten um, of why people don't want to disclose in my survey is that people seem unwilling to do the bare minimum. So how do they expect disabled or, or, or uh, health disadvantaged? Um, I hate, I, I dislike the term differently abled. Um, so I'm trying to find a, a term that I, it's hard to find that middle ground term between abled and disabled because um, it's there's uh, not a lot of good ways to succinctly say it. Um, but, you know, a lot of people who fall anywhere but the shiny, white, perfect, able body area, which is not most people, for the record. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> most people have some sort of issue, whether it's I am allergic to pollen. Please allow me to bring Zyrtec with me. People seem so willing to do the bare minimum. Again, looking at you, March for Science. <sighs> that how do they expect people to disclose and feel comfortable even being a part of the conversation or a part of the opportunity if they don't seem willing to even ask or, or, or anywhere on their site say, if you need accessibility, please just tell us. Yeah. And it's crazy that, that field work gets away with this because they're usually associated with a university. And as far as I know, most Western countries require you to pull it on, put it on your syllabus that accessibility is a part of this, which I made that point again about Science March, where, you know, if we can include disability on, and it's by law, syllabuses may be included in your mission statement. That's a good point. But yeah, so... so you know, to, to, I guess, wrap it up at some level, the survey has gone very well in a very, I think I need a lot of wine to actually really analyze these results because it's going to be very upsetting. Um, yeah. But, you know, how do we expect to talk about being a woke, quote unquote, and I'm making fun of us here if that's not uh, obvious oh, enough. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> We claim to be such a woke field, but we don't do the bare minimum for something like accessibility or gender identity, because that's also a huge issue with field schools is gender identity, which uh, again, that's a whole nother goddamn podcast yeah. Um, yeah. You know, in and of itself. But, you know, how do you expect people to be comfortable disclosing when you're not comfortable doing 
the free bare minimum stuff. Yeah. And your point about the tiered approach is a very important one. And if it's something that takes all of 15 seconds and costs no money, there's no reason not to do it. Like just take the easy win, do the, the cheap and easy fixes. It doesn't have to be the $4,400 install of, of two metal buttons on a door. You know, it can, it can be all of the easy things. And so I think that the tiered approach is a very important thing to consider. And what it comes down to is, is, um, and I, I talked to a few people about this uh, again about the March in Science. <laughs> it's just such a good example of how not to do this. Um, you know, <laughs> it doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to overthink it. What disabled and and people with other chronic conditions are asking is just to be brought to the freaking table when we usually aren't. And again, that's why I wanted to do this paper is because especially in the field sciences, it's just a disability is just like, it's over there somewhere we're just going to ignore that it exists yet we pretend to be so woke and it is pretend woke it is faux intersectionalism because unless you're including disability and ableism in your conversation about you know uh, uh lgbtq plus rights um racism sexism misogyny all, all of the all of the isms all of the all of the things that we talk about in intersectionality and in feminism in social justice in being woke if you're not even willing to accept that you should include disability or include a tick box that says, I need this event to be accessible and allow a comment, you're, you're just playing at that point. And, you know, and a lot of people, unfortunately, then try and bring up, well, this is more of a problem because of this. This is more of a problem because of this. But, you know, you see constantly, unfortunately, in the news that a lot of Unfortunately, in particular, um, POC individuals who have been um, affected by inefficient cop training, um, like uh, the autistic man who was shot in, I believe it was Miami, I know it was South Florida. Um, there is a lot of a lot of crossover with disability and that type of crime and that type of treatment of people. So, I mean, I, I, I couldn't imagine, I'm queer and disabled. I couldn't imagine also being a POC and uh, a person of color and, and trying to deal with all of this on, on top of that or being Muslim on top of all of that and also trying to deal with this in the U.S. Because it's it's been a nightmare enough just as as someone who is queer and disabled to try and even get people to understand that I'm just asking for a checkbox. Yeah. So that I can tell you, hey, have a have a chair next to the podium. Yeah, and that's not a big ask. Hey, just so you know, you know, you know, I might miss one or two days in the field. I'm paying to be there at this point, you know. And and then, it, it, you know, there's also the issue with I definitely expect different accessibility or accommodations if I'm being paid to do something and if I'm paying to do something. Yeah, like there is no yeah. reason for somebody to be mad that I'm paying for a field school, and I feel like crap one day and i my pain levels are out the roof i am paying to be there you are not losing money by me missing one day when you bully me about it thankfully i was not at my field school bullied about this but i do know people who have been bullied about that 
And so it, it comes down to the fact that, you know, again, I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep repeating it. And, and I, I, I hate to agree with the easy win thing because that's problematic in its own ways in some ways, but it, at the end of the day, it's true in action. Um, not necessarily true in morality, I would say, but it's true in action that, you know, we, we have a bare minimum and it's just not being met categorically not being met by archaeology, let alone academia, let alone science as a whole, even outside of academia. Yeah. And I guess I should clarify too. I, I don't mean like only do the easy win and that's like oh, no, all I, you I, ever I, do. I'm just saying like, I think the cumulative effect of, of those actions of people taking the tiered approach into always do the easy win like never say no to the easy win basically but also do the other things because i think the cumulative action of just accepting uh disability access as something that needs to be considered will eventually come around so that field schools can start to set aside a budget for access and you know, it can just be part of standard practice. It should, it should already, if it's, it blows my mind that we have to put this on our syllabuses, syllabi, oh, whatever. <laughs> not an English major, <laughs> clearly. Yeah, we're not um, humanities. We're not, we're not the humanities. It's troubling to me that people have to deal with this and they have to put it on their syllabi, syllabus, whatever the correct word is, but they don't even think about putting it anywhere else. Yeah. And so that speaks more to a problem in academia than I guess CRM, but you know, CRM has to deal with it in a di completely different way um, that I won't even go into because that's a whole another beast. Yeah. I've deliberately left CRM out of this just because there's so many issues yeah. with that. I, I couldn't even do that in a single podcast. <laughs> it's, it's obviously this is hard to, to even talk about succinctly, let alone going into, the CRM side of this, you know, that's why I've, I've kind of focused um, vaguely on academia, academia. I, I, I merged academia and academic there, which are bad, bad verbiage there. No, I like uh, it. It's innovative. It's innovative. I'll, I'll, I will allow you to say that. <laughs> I will allow you to say that. Um, I tried to vaguely keep it on the more academia based side because I could, do this study just on CRM professionals, you know, and it'd be probably even more disturbing. Yeah. Though I, I mean, it's not like I haven't gotten some answers that were like, you know, I, I had to leave CRM because there was just no way. I have turned, I um, have turned down CRM jobs that I have been offered um, because they were like five month long positions. And I was like, nope, can't do that. Yeah. There's no way I can do five months straight of digging, you know, STPs. For any non-archaeologists who listen, shovel test bits. Um, <laughs> there's no way I can do five months of STPs five days a week and not be like dead three months in. Yeah, and even for people who don't identify as disabled, you know, the the previous podcast to this one, uh, episode twenty, uh, I'm I called the the title "Fit for the Field," and it's it's kind of a clickbaity title. Because if you're if you go into it thinking that and here's the spoiler if you if you manage to skip that one and you're listening to this then I guess don't bother but um <laughs> the the thing is is I had my brother on who's a personal trainer and um 
you know, you, you might go into that episode thinking that he's going to offer a workout plan to make you fit for the field. Um, but what we end up doing is breaking down the social construction of fitness and basically saying that, you know, the takeaway point is that the concept of fitness needs to be avoiding injury rather than, you know, any sort of social construct. It's very exploitative. Like our archaeology is very exploitative to, you know, anybody who's practicing it. Which is why my PhD is important and people should let me into their programs. Absolutely. So if, <laughs> if you're on the board of, of the universities uh, it, that, are, that receive Hannah's application, you should accept her. Not that they're listening to this podcast. <laughs> you never know. You never know. I'm always surprised when I actually do get feedback because usually I just think like, I'm oh. howling into the void. Uh, but sometimes I get some really good feedback. Howling into the void is important. Yeah. 90% of what I do is howling into the void. Like, I'll be honest. I, again, I mentioned that in my dissertation proposal. I go. Now, I know that most people will probably ignore the research here. But once the research is done and I've proven that I'm right, and I know I'm right, um, <laughs> I know I'm right just based on personal experience and having talked to other people and, and having so many people be like, oh, yeah, no, you should do that project because you are right and we need to have this out there. That's been the overwhelming response to actually both the ableism project and my uh, field school efficacy. Well, I guess I should call it training efficacy project um, is that you may feel like you're howling into a void, but oh my God, if even one person, even one conference, cough, cough, maybe the SAAs because cough, cough, I mean, you're such a big conference, cough, cough, there's no way that statistically you have no disabled people, cough, cough, me <laughs> attending your conferences, <laughs> cough, cough. Um, there's statistically no way that you don't have at least a subset of your people who would need this also cough cough like we uh i think we had talked about getting your your uh, efficacy in uh training program into a session you know we for did. us working together in, in 2018 so cough cough washington dc 2018 uh you know look for us cough, cough when i'll hopefully be in a program cough cough <laughs> <laughs> And not just continuously howling in the wind about the, the dissertation I want to write. Yes. But yeah, so if even if one person comes out of this and is like, oh, you know what? Even if it's about the just the transcription thing that, oh, wow, I didn't realize transcription helped more than just hard of hearing people. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize closed captioning helped more than hard of hearing people. Even if someone just takes that away, even if it's one person, I will be happy have held in the wind yeah it's a meaningful contribution to the field and so i thank you so much for joining this episode and i think we'll we'll wrap this one up if anybody wants to uh read hannah's howlings into the void on twitter she's at tiny sapien um and uh don't all caps yell at her on twitter and, and call <laughs> her things <laughs> because i will gift back at you and it's GIF, not GIF. Yes. <laughs> just just going to drop that there because I can. <laughs> yeah, that's provocative, but it is correct. Uh, the the inventor of the... That's the story of my life on Twitter. Only follow me or go to my Twitter if you want provocative, but correct. <laughs> but correct. If you disagree, you're wrong and bad, and it just it doesn't look good. Uh, yeah, so thanks, Hannah. And uh, um, yeah, and... 
if you're on iTunes, rate this episode five stars or don't even bother. Yeah, but we'll we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Go to Go Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Uh, all of your contributions are incredibly appreciated. And uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support. So thanks again. And please uh, share this with any of your friends, colleagues, classmates, students, teachers, whatever. Uh, you can also find me online. I'm very online. Uh, the blog is go dig a hole.com. Uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms at go dig a hole. <laughs> <laughs>